0: Welcome to the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Dr. Pierre Corey, a pulmonary and critical care medicine specialist and former associate professor and chief of the Critical Care Service at the University of Wisconsin, president and chief medical officer of the frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, and author of the new book, The War on Ivermectin, The Medicine That Saved Millions and Could Have Ended the Pandemic. Dr. Pierre Corey, it's great to have you with us today on The Shilling Show Unleashed.
1: Oh, great, Rob. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. You talk a a little bit
0: about your professional history in the book, and I do think it's important for people to understand that uh, you have come to this place with a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience. So maybe you could just summarize for us leading up to COVID times.
1: So um, my uh, earlier career before COVID, right, was um, I was uh, boarded in internal medicine, pulmonary diseases, and critical care medicine. I was most known as as an intensivist or an ICU specialist you know, within my field before COVID, I was very happy with my career. I was, I was well known in the country, and really across the world, because I was one of the pioneers in a subspecialty called critical care ultrasonography. And I was the editor of a book uh, that's translated into seven languages in second edition. And I also did a lot of work with hypothermia. Uh, after cardiac arrest, I worked with the New York fire department, put together a hypothermia program with them. And um, I, I was really interested in critical care medicine. And I was known as a a master educator, I won awards at major medical centers, and uh, I was doing pretty well <laughs> before COVID hit.
0: You talk in the book, and you use this term, the pre-COVID Pierre. Yeah. And just a, a little bit, could you tell us what that means and how things changed for you pretty rapidly post-COVID?
1: What I mean by that is, you know, when I look back to what I thought and what I knew uh, before COVID, is you know, I, I had really an enduring um, trust in. Most of the institutions of society, you know, starting with really media. You know, I, I was a lifelong New York Times reader, read it cover to cover every day since I was a child, really. Mm-hmm. I thought it was the arbiter of truth and the paper of record. Um, I thought if you really wanted to know what was going on, you read the New York Times. I almost laugh as I say that now, but, um, you know, that that was what I thought. Um, I went to it for my information to really try to understand the world you know, that actually applied to a lot of things. So it applied to medical journals. So the high impact medical journals, like the top journals in the world, New England Journal of Medicine, Journal of the American Medical Association, Lancet. You know, I thought only the best science and scientists were published there. Go to public health agencies. I thought they were really about public health. I, I thought like, heck, when, when, when the pandemic started, I thought like Anthony Fauci was like a sympathetic fella, doing his best with a tough job and a lot of critics. And I was sympathetic to him all of those beliefs have been, um, I wouldn't have maybe robbed or exposed as, as false. I see the world very, very differently now. And, you know, it was it was a hard uh, kind of awakening that I basically had to see incessant lies being propagated by all of those institutions uh, repeatedly. To me, the, the, the core probably disillusionment was what happened in the medical journals. Cause that, that's really, you know, I'm a researcher, I'm a clinician and that's where I look to for my scientific information. And I had to observe, you know, I became an expert in COVID. I got really interested in COVID when it broke out and myself and my colleagues were deeply studied. We read everything you could. We talked to doctors around the world. And, and then what I saw coming out of the journals and the agencies were just blatant, unfortunate lies. And it, it was really disorienting to be honest. You know where I am now is, is very different I would say yeah. I'm a quite a bit wiser there's no end to my skepticism over anything that I'm told from any position or any institution or authority so it's, it's quite the transformation
0: I think dr. Corey a lot of us uh, me and the media and others had to go through the same sort of thing maybe not the intense level that you did but the question I have for you just to follow up on that does that call into question everything they ever told you before? Or is this something that just happened at COVID and they had
1: veracity uh, prior to this? Ooh, that's a good question. So I think the short answer is no, I don't think it applies to everything. Mm -hmm. It really applies to science in which there is significant financial implications. You know, I have lived through a fraud before in my career in critical care. There was a when I was first into into my specialty, there was a medicine that was propagated across the country uh, for sepsis and they Basically, in the postmortem, we saw what happened is Mm -hmm. pharma literally bought out the guidelines committees of critical care. They started a national sepsis campaign, and they marketed this drug, which actually eventually, I'll fast forward, eventually got pulled off the market because it was dangerous Mm -hmm. um, and people were dying at a higher rate. But not before every ICU specialist in the country was using it in sepsis. I, I saw that, I thought that was a one-off. <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize that that's a model for everything. And now, when I look back, I look at statins, I look at SSRIs, um, I mean, there are numerous pharmaceutical frauds propagated. And, and so it's not everything, because I think there still is good science and good research. Uh, I think most researchers are, uh, have integrity and, and really are looking for scientific truths. But once they start doing science, which has major financial implications, wow the science change it's not science anymore it's um it's something else
0: i want to talk about your initial impressions and observations when COVID hit particularly some of the things that that we saw coming out of china uh bodies i don't know if you saw these videos but i saw bodies lying in the streets and hallways and i don't even know if these were concocted to freak people out but what was your impression how did you take all of this in initially
1: yeah. So mine was a similar, I was really alarmed. I remember cause I was the chief of critical care service and the director of the main medical surgical ICU at university of Wisconsin, which is one of the biggest you know research and academic centers in the country. And I remember sitting with leadership and, you know, when we saw that, I remember my leadership said, it's not coming here. You know, this is all, you know, hype. And uh, they were wrong really quickly. You know, we saw it starting to hit Lombardy and Seattle and New York. And, you know, I'm, I'm from New York. I'm trained in New York. I probably know every ICU director in New York city. And at that time I was on the phone with them and man, they were getting hit hard. I actually left my job in Wisconsin. I went to New York. So I was on the front lines in May of 2020 of all of the, uh, hype and fear mongering. I will tell you on the front lines in that first wave, it was really, really bad. Uh, I mean, our ICUs were filling. Um, there was so many people on ventilators they all had the same x-ray. I mean, it's nothing I've ever seen before. It truly was uh, quite a dramatic scene um, in that first wave. You know, it changed quite a bit afterwards. And that first wave, a lot of that calamity, unfortunately, was the lack of treatment. Doctors were being told not to try anything. And and I don't know that that was corrupt. That Well, what that was, it's, it's this baked in now kind of... Um, belief amongst doctors that you shouldn't use any medicine unless proven in some large double blind randomized control test. So doctors are afraid to try. They're afraid to doctor unless they're told by a journal or a society with a guideline how to treat something. Nobody is willing to try things. And that's actually why I resigned from University of Wisconsin early on, because I was a clinical leader and my leadership, was literally telling me that I had to advocate for something called supportive care only, which is like fluids, oxygen, ventilators. I couldn't try corticosteroids. I couldn't try blood thinners. Not that I couldn't, but they were really uh, attacking me and and arguing with me that I was doing stuff that was not evidence-based. And I was like, I couldn't believe, I thought I was in some crazy world because I was like, do you see these patients? They're landing on ventilators. They're dying slowly. No one's coming off. They're clearly dying from lack of treatment. I'm going to treat and it got so bad, I said, you know what? I, I, I actually resigned over moral and ethical uh, obligation. Uh, you know, I, I said, I morally and ethically object to this approach and I refuse to be a part of it as a clinical leader and, and I resigned.
0: The frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance brought a lot of hope to people like me and in my listening audience. And we've interviewed many people from your organization. But I'd love for you to tell us about the foundations of the FLCCC and what you wanted to accomplish.
1: It's so interesting because I thought that what we did, we wouldn't be so alone or unique. I mean, I thought it was natural. I mean, when we started seeing, like I said, when we saw the reports and, you know, all these cities getting hit, my colleagues were telling me. I mean, me and Paul, you know, who are the co-founders and our, you know, our colleagues. We, you know, Paul put together a protocol early, like March, 2020, he put one, it was posted on his website that was getting attention. And then doctors reached out to him and they said, listen, you you got to do this, you know, get some colleagues, get a group together, put out a protocol. You know, people are, they're really, people want guidance. Doctors want guidance. And our government was literally saying, stay home until your lips turn blue. Like I said, we were exchanging papers. I remember those early days. I mean, I mean, every hour we were sending a new paper off of our preprint, digesting it, reading it, discussing it, you know, formulating a protocol and... You know, and then we gave ourselves a name, and I will say that in the beginning, we were five guys with a website. Now, five very credible guys, right? You know, I gave you my CV. If you look at the CV of the, the guys that Paul put together, I mean, first of all, Paul is the most pract- uh, published practicing intensivist in the history of our specialty. Umberto Monduri is the world expert on the use of corticosteroids in critical illness. Joe Verone is the editor of three different journals. And, you know, we were, we were a highly credible group, and we thought that would carry some weight, to have a group of five of some of those highly published uh, physicians in our specialty. And we put out a hospital protocol and we were, I mean, we talked to media relentlessly, you know, we had a group also that was helping us with trying to do PR, trying to get the results of our protocol. Cause we were, we were we were seeing really low mortalities in our ICUs and, but the media wouldn't talk to us. Nobody wanted to listen. They literally were saying when you do a trial, call us back. Like they didn't want to hear about our successes without some published study. And to be honest, to do a randomized control trial as a researcher, you need to have what's called clinical equipoise, which means that you have to really believe that you don't know whether your therapy is more likely to help or hurt. And you need that clinical equipoise. If you know that you're saving lives and your therapy and approach is effective, it is unethical. To take care of a patient and give them a placebo. There was no way we were going to do a randomized control trial uh, with a placebo. And unfortunately in modern science, no one accepts that. And so, however, I would say by word of mouth and by, you know, our website um, and our credibility, I think we did reach, well, actually we reached a lot of people around the world. We didn't hit the mainstream, you know, we were attacked uh, generally by the, the consensus, the authorities, but um, I think a lot of people were listening. There were thousands of doctors around the world listening, following our guidance, and we heard tons of testimonials. You know, we, we did everything we could in, in, in this quickly unfolded, and I don't want to, you know, state this over, you know, overly state this, but it, suddenly I saw this totalitarian environment where, like, this top-down Blanket of censorship and propaganda and lies and edicts from authorities which were completely divorced from science. I saw unending policies that were being issued on a daily basis, which made no scientific sense. I always, I always call attention to the day that the FDA put on their website that there's no role in checking antibodies before vaccination. They literally disappeared the concept of natural immunity, something that's been around for millennia that is one of the scientific dogmas and the FDA disappeared it overnight, and now you have doctors vaccinating people who just recovered from COVID? Yeah. I mean, it was absolutely absurd, and that's only one example. The world changed real quick in front of me, and I didn't recognize it, and I said, I said to myself, why has the world gone mad? I couldn't figure out why the world has gone mad.
0: You reference Dr. Paul Merrick, who's been a guest on my radio show, and I've watched him testify before the Virginia Senate under Louise Lucas, and he was treated like dirt. He was given no time. It was embarrassing. It was humiliating. And it really made me angry. All of you paid a price like this, but why is it that people wouldn't even listen to renowned experts like you and like Dr. Merrick?
1: You know, I can try to answer that question. I, I think I'm going to go back to my earlier point is that, and I still think this is a problem. I think it's changing is that you know, in, in this state of fear, people did look to authorities. And although we thought we were a credible authority to listen to, we weren't Fauci, we weren't the agencies, we weren't the government. I think a lot part, large part of the population had this implicit faith and trust. Were they going to listen to this, I don't want to use the word fringe, that's what we're called all the time, but we were outside the consensus. We were providing information that was directly discordant, if not contradictory with the leaders of science and medicine, right? Not only the agencies, the societies, the Infectious Disease Society of America, you know, the critical care societies. And here you have this group of five who's saying something very different. And I, I don't think people knew how to interpret that. They, because if if they were to listen to us and believe us, then they have to admit and be ready to accept that the others are wrong and lying. And I, I think most people cannot reach that conclusion that quickly. They They can't just jettison a lifelong of, of faith and trust in the institutions of society and then go after, you know, I don't want to call this five guys in a website, but five doctors with a very different opinion. I just don't think most people are capable of that because if you do that, then what are you left with? What do you trust? What can guide you? If you decide suddenly that you're not going to listen to the trusted authorities and I'm using the air quotes experts, it's a, it's a big ask for someone psychologically.
0: The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast continues with Dr. Pierre Corey in just a moment.
1: Shilling Show
0: Unleashed.
1: ShillingShowMedia.com is your one-stop shop for websites, audio and video production, and photography.
0: ShillingShowMedia.com will take your project from conception to completion.
1: ShillingShowMedia.com is reasonably priced and highly professional.
0: Need a website for your business? Visit ShillingShowMedia.com.
1: Need a video created or edited? Visit shillingshowmedia.com.
0: Have a photography or graphic design project? Visit shillingshowmedia.com.
1: shillingshowmedia.com is your one-stop shop for websites, audio and video production, and photography.
0: Visit shillingshowmedia.com. That's shillingshowmedia.com. Looking up for us. Rob Chubb. Chubb. The book is The War on Ivermectin, The Medicine That Saved Millions and Could Have Ended the Pandemic. Our guest is the author, Dr. Pierre Corey. We continue here on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. I do want to talk about ivermectin because this was nothing short of a miracle. Tell us a little bit about the history of the drug and its safety because it was portrayed by the FDA as dangerous.
1: I have yet to find a drug that is safer. You know, if you look at adverse event databases, deaths associated, nothing comes close to ivermectin really. Uh, I mean, aspirin and Tylenol are far more dangerous. Mm. Um, It's been distributed around the world, right? So it was discovered in the late 70s by a microbiologist who's looking for organisms that secrete substances which kill other organisms, right? So a lot of organisms for protection, they have the ability to kill things that might invade them or, or kill them. And he discovered this bacteria in the soil of a golf course in Japan. And he, uh, they noticed when they put it in a culture dish with worms around it, that all the worms died. And they were like, wow, this looks like a powerful antiparasitic. And, Very quickly after, it was proven to be safe, highly effective against a number of parasites, and it was then distributed across lots of low and middle income countries across the world to uh, rid the world of really two disfiguring diseases. Uh, One is elephantiasis, and the other one is river blindness, which in many communities in Africa, by the time you were 40, most adults were blind, and they were led around by children with sticks. And so it literally restored the sight to a good portion of the world, and it's an incredible story. And the Discoverer won the Nobel Prize for that, because it was one of the most major uh, public health impacts. But let's get to COVID. What was found as early as 2012, when they started studying its efficacy against viruses, that you know, when I started looking at Ivermectin, I was shocked that there was 10 years of studies showing that it would stop the replication of at least a dozen viruses, from Zika to Dengue to West Nile, and all these RNA viruses, it would stop them in their tracks. When it was first applied in COVID, there was a study in Australia which got worldwide attention because it was a cell culture model. But they showed that SARS-CoV-2 was obliterated from the cell culture model within 48 hours. Mm-hmm. They, they couldn't find any uh, more uh, live virus. Then it started to be using, used clinically. And to go back to like my work and the FLCC's work, you know, our first protocol, which we put out in late March, early 2020, it was a hospital protocol. We did not have ivermectin in it. Um, We'd heard of the potential efficacy of it. We had it on a list of drugs with like a question mark that we were researching. And we continue to follow data on all the therapeutics. And in the fall of 2020, around September, October, a lot of the first trials that were uh, initiated, you know, with with the outbreak of the pandemic, the results were starting to come in on preprint servers and publications. And we were looking at things like hydroxychloroquine and monoclonal uh, antibodies, convalescent plasma, uh, interleukin blockers. And they were all negative. Uh, hydroxychloroquine is another. You know, I, I often make the the comment that someone could have written the book "The War on Hydroxychloroquine." Yeah. So it was the same war, same tactics, mm-hmm. same lies. Um, it turned out we got fooled early on. We didn't think hydroxychloroquine was effective because why? The trials said it didn't work in the top journals in the world, and we believed that at the time. We were like, the good trials showed it didn't work, but. The one thing that we noticed is that the signal around ivermectin was so strong, we we hadn't seen any data like this, and really in most disease models. I mean, we were seeing these massive reductions in deaths reported in those treated with ivermectin, massive reductions in hospitalization, time to viral clearance, time to clinical recovery. And we were shocked. And Paul's the one who really identified that signal. And I remember he had a Zoom call. It was October of 2020, and he basically told us in the FLC, he says, I think this thing can end the pandemic. And he went through the data. I jumped in right behind him. I started doing a comprehensive review paper. And I mean, I wrote for the next month and every day as I was writing and trying to finish the paper, a new trial would be posted somewhere, which I'd have to integrate, reorder my references. It was, it was insane, but I, I've never seen that much data in support of medicine. And, and then as you know, I was asked to give testimony on early treatment and I gave testimony for Senator Johnson's hearing and it, it went viral. Um, And suddenly, Ivermectin was a topic of discussion, not only here, but around the world. Organizations from around the world were calling us within days. They had translated my testimony, put it on their websites. In in hindsight, uh, and and then my life started going sideways. (laughs) Uh, The life of the FLCCC started going sideways. And we initially did not know what was going on. We couldn't understand why suddenly we were the focus of attacks and criticism and all sorts of things, you know, hit jobs in the media, being lumped in with Trump, being lumped in with hydroxychloroquine. And it was this massive propaganda campaign. And, you know, in hindsight, we we understood that we had launched ourselves into a decades long war on off patent medicines. Off patent medicines are the the Achilles heel of the entire pharmaceutical industry, which is uh, one of the most profitable on earth. They have more money than God, uh, I'll use that phrase. And we're literally threatening, you know, me and my uh, testimony on Ivermectin and our guidance on Ivermectin was threatening a market that opened up north of a hundred billion. If you add in all the vaccines over the last few years, the monoclonal antibodies, Molnupiravir, Paxlovid, and they can't have that. And so we were then the target of a massive global disinformation campaign. And, And that's what inspired me to write that book because I saw what they were doing once I learned about what this information was, what those tactics are, it was like suddenly I understood the world in a way I didn't. And I said to myself, I am documenting this for history. I, 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 I see this, I know what they're doing. This is all about destroying the efficacy of a widely available, one of the safest, most widely available, most inexpensive drugs and most potent drugs in, in any disease model I've studied in history. And I saw, Lies ringing from everywhere I could see in the media sphere, in academia. I I felt like I was responsible to write that book.
0: I want to talk about two aspects of this which were particularly disturbing. So I was working on getting ivermectin for myself uh, at this time, and I know there were doctors risking their licenses. I did obtain some. But then I had a problem with a local Kroger pharmacy, which had filled a prescription for ivermectin about six months prior. When I went for a refill, yep. they said, no, you can't have it. And then I fought with them for about six months, and I finally got you know a couple of three uh, milligram tablets. I found another alternate source. But the pharmacies and then the doctors risking their licenses, I mean, this is outrageous.
1: The lengths that that war was taken was unbelievable. And you think that you, you can still get fentanyl now, yeah. but you, boy, you try to get ivermectin to someone, you mm-hmm. lose your license. But you know what, what that was, and I have a chapter in my book, it's called the horse dewormer PR campaign yes. and all of what you describe was actually in the wake of that campaign. Cause it wasn't just the PR campaign. So it was a coordinated sequence of actions and it started with the CDC. And, and I also know the trigger, what triggered the timing of that campaign. And what happened was in the middle of August of 2021, data came out showing the amount of ivermectin's prescriptions that were being written in the United States. And it was on a meteoric rise. It hit 90,000 prescriptions a week in August of 2021. And that's only the retail pharmacies, not the compounding. I think, not I think, I know that spooked the other side. They knew that they were losing this war and that doctors were figuring out, people were figuring out that this worked. So what happened was the CDC put out a memo, went to every State Department of Health, who then put it in the inbox of every licensed physician in that state, and it was an alarming memo. It says, you know, uh, ivermectin overdose is on the rise. And then it said misleading statements like the FDA has not approved this for COVID. You don't need them to prove it for COVID. It's an FDA-approved drug. You can repurpose it and FDA even champions off label use. So when you don't have other effective therapy. So, you know, you, you saw the CDC essentially manipulating and lying. Um, the data on which they based their rise in overdoses was actually faulty. They misstated. There was they were basically reporting calls to poison centers as poisonings. And they were just calls. People were calling poison centers asking questions. And so it was based on a complete falsehood. But then after the CDC did that. The FDA came out with their famous tweet, which I will tell you was was crafted by a PR agency. They know how to make things go viral. Mm -hmm. So that tweet goes viral. Then very soon after that, the AMA, the American Board of Pharmacy, they did something I've never heard of before. They put out a position statement and it literally said we call for the immediate cessation of prescribing of ivermectin for covid. One of the safest drugs in the world. There was no data to show that it didn't work at that time because the fraudulent trials hadn't been published yet. You had the the largest professional societies in the country literally screaming at the country that you need to stop prescribing. And right after that, you saw this dominoes, right? Retail pharmacists suddenly indignantly refusing to fill this dangerous, you know, unproven, ineffective drug. And, you know, the fights I got into with pharmacists and it happened to patients all over, and some of them were sick and they couldn't get access to a life saving medicine. And quite a few died. Not quite a few died, many died. That question that you asked is, is so, it's one of the most troubling and disturbing aspects, which is you literally saw the health system working against the people. And it's not the health system, it's those who control the health system, which is essentially pharma. And if I haven't mentioned that, you know, what I've learned about the papers, the journals, and the agencies is that they are literally controlled and captured by Pharma and have for decades. So you're literally, you, you're watching a pandemic response, which is being run by a corporation whose sole interest is in profits for their shareholders. They're not about public health. And so you you saw this corporate fascism uh, literally lead to hundreds of thousands of deaths. And, And I want that to be remembered. And I, like I said, my book, I want that to enter the historical record. If in 10 years, someone wants to know what really happened in COVID, I think my book will tell that truth.
0: I have a kind of a question that I've never had answered. And I wonder if you have some insight here in Virginia. And I think in many other places, there is right to try legislation that is in the law. So I'm thinking to myself, well, if I have a right to try, how come I can't have a right to use ivermectin? What happened there?
1: Wow. So, oh my God, you nailed one of the key aspects. So first of all, Right to try is Senator Ron Johnson's kind of signature achievement legislatively. That was something near and dear to his heart uh, because of experience he had with his daughter, you know, had a strange uh, congenital heart condition. And, you know, it required sort of innovative approaches. He wanted people with uh, terminal illnesses, you know, serious diseases to have access to. And this is the key, Rob. I, I will answer your question to experimental therapies, things that haven't been uh, proven or approved yet, right? Things that are being actively researched. He wanted, you know, if someone's going to die, the risk-benefit ratio is different, right? It it probably is reasonable ethically and and medically to try something that holds out hope. I mean, because what's the alternative? Certain death. The key, though, is why why didn't that apply to ivermectin? Well, very simple. Ivermectin is not an experimental drug. Mm -hmm. It's FDA approved. And so if, if it Ivermectin had just been created and uh, discovered and developed and hadn't gone through full trials, it would have had experimental status. Mm. And I've talked with Ron about this and he knows this from when he passed the legislation. he knows that the key missing word from that legislation uh, was that, or the word that really kind of stymied everyone was that it was experimental. Mm. So it doesn't apply to other medicines. And so that's why it didn't apply to ivermectin. You couldn't use right to try legislation to support your use of ivermectin.
0: Finally, Dr. Corey, there is mounting in social media a resistance campaign. Uh, People are sensing that something like this is going to happen again. And they're basically saying, do not comply no matter what happens. And that involves masks and vaccines and all the rest of it. So what happens the next time we're faced with a situation like this? Because we're all concerned.
1: I will tell you, you need to check your sources of guidance. Um, I think the agencies have now fully proven themselves to be corrupt and untrustworthy. So if you continue to look for guidance on how to approach some emerging public health emergency, you're going to get what you got the last three years, period, end of story. I would like to bring up uh, my organization, which is a nonprofit. We have no conflicts of interest, which I think is what sets us our guidance and our research apart from everyone else. We don't work for an employer that can tell us to shut up or tell us what to say. We don't get any money from sales of any medicine. We're a medical education organization. And, you know, I think that's the key. You need to look for guidance from those without conflicts of interest. And that is very difficult to do, because I will tell you, every employed physician has a conflict of interest with their employer. They cannot speak objectively, openly and publicly against the consensus because they will quickly lose their jobs. I mean, if you look at the careers of us in the FLCCC, we, we had, like I said, we had some of the most uh, productive and successful careers, all came crashing through a hole. Paul's career is over, uh, my academic career is over. Luckily I still have a license and I am in private practice and I treat vaccine injury. I'm a specialist in vaccine injury and I'm overwhelmed with the amount of people who are ill from that. Umberto Maduri was forced to retire and that was an order that came from Washington to his VA hospital and he was forced into retirement. It is going to happen again. And now it's getting really pathetic, right? You see this, what they're trying to do now. Now they're so desperate because vaccine uptake has plummeted. I think people are getting wise. I mean, the uptake of the last booster was I think 17% in this country. And now they're putting out some monovalent barely tested booster. That's actually even variant outdated. It's, it's treating an variant that's on its way out. And they're literally trying to get the country to vaccinate. And I think, people aren't going to listen. I think they've literally exhausted their credibility and any authority they have. And my hopes is that the American people have woken up. They're wise to the fact that corporations have taken over most agencies of our government and they are not to be trusted. They do not have your interest as their primary consideration.
0: Dr. Pierre Corey, if people want to follow your work online, get more information on FLCCC and importantly, to get a copy of the war on ivermectin, will you tell us how to do those things?
1: Yeah, so my nonprofit is at flccc.net. Uh, the book can be purchased most easily on, um, on Amazon. Uh, my private practice is uh, drpiercorey.com And then I have a Substack where I uh, do a lot of writing about a lot of these issues we talked about. And that's piercorey.substack.com.
0: Dr. Pierre Corey, we thank you for your bravery, for telling the truth in spite of a big personal price that you had to pay in professional as well. And we thank you for joining us today on The Shilling Show Unleashed Podcast.
1: Thanks a lot, Rob. Appreciate it.
0: That concludes another edition of the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at SchillingShow.com where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time.